0: and get 10% off your plan.
2: I can feel these things when they start and we're like, ooh, okay, this is going to become a big topic of conversation even when it just starts. And I felt that way about TikTok. And this is one where, again, it's kind of coming up enough times. I think what... The challenge will be is how do you use this efficiently? How do you make sure that you are truly driving an incremental sale versus converting somebody who would have clicked on your product anyway? That's what we're gonna have to figure out, right? Because we wanna make sure that we're putting our marketing dollars, like I said, in the
1: most efficient ways. Stay tuned. Welcome to today's episode of Brave Commerce. I'm Rachel
3: Tippograph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero, and this is a show that talks about what's relevant in e-commerce for the world's biggest brands.
1: Sarah, do you wear sunscreen? Every day. Oh. I'm actually really good about it, but I get that probably also, as usual, highlights our age gap. How about you, my dear?
3: No, you have phenomenal skin, so I feel like you have a great skin routine,
1: you're too kind. I think the distance and, and the absence is making me everything feel a hell of a lot better. But thank you, Rach.
3: I wear sunscreen when I am in the sun, but I, I probably need to step my game up.
1: Protection is a very important thing. And you don't realize it until it's too late. Wow, I really sound old. Sheesh. The whole idea of protecting yourself for the future, if you will, is an important topic in general whether that's wearing sunscreen, even in business. A hundred percent.
3: Well, I think we both have shared love for the brand that is going to be on the show today, which is Supergoop, which totally disrupted the sunscreen category. And the company was actually started in 2005 by a teacher.
1: So smart. Talk about somebody working in
3: preventative, right? And she did it. You'll hear the story because her friend was diagnosed with skin cancer at 29. Fast forward. This business, and you know, it's not public what they're valued at, but we do know that last year, Blackstone took a majority stake in Supergoop and, and valued it somewhere between $600 and $700 million.
1: That is not insignificant. One would argue that sunscreen or even great moisturizer with high SPF is actually quite the crowded category. There's a lot of players in the space. So to be able to differentiate yourself online, in-store, requires a high degree of tenacity, also requires a high degree of differentiation. Absolutely.
3: And today, we're actually not going to hear from the founder. We're going to hear from
1: the CEO, Amanda Baldwin, who joined the business in 2016. It's a really big difference when you've handed the reins over to somebody else, when you've built something to a certain point and you say, okay, I'm ready for that next step, but scaling is going to require beyond the founder. You know, if their founder was a teacher and she recognized she came up with a great idea, when that idea needs to scale, you got to bring in somebody else, right? Sarah, this this is a story that you're familiar with because you typically enter a
3: company when there's a change in leadership and, and you've done that a few times when the founder sort of takes a step back.
1: Both 360i and Profitero are examples of companies where I was not the founder, but I came in at a pivotal time and... At 360 when I came in, I was working very closely with the founders. The founders eventually left and we took the company to different places. And I think it's very hard for founders to let go, but it's also extremely rewarding for founders when they see their babies grow up and turn into well-adjusted adults. But Rachel, you're on the flip side of that now. Well, yeah, I mean, this is very topical for me
3: because... Just a few months ago, I brought in Micmac's first ever president and COO, Dan Zitting. And what I explained to the company is that Dan is going to run the day-to-day business so I can go do what I do best, which is predict the future of commerce and, and go make that happen for the industry. I have a lot of empathy for Dan because I'm still the CEO and I'm the founder and I'm very active in the company, as everyone knows. But at the same time, I'm trying to empower him to run the business.
1: Well, maybe we can take a lesson from Amanda, see what she's done to take the company to greater heights and build off of the foundation that Holly originally built. And maybe you and I can both learn a thing or two about either letting go or bringing along. Absolutely. Let's bring Amanda onto the show.
3: Hey, Amanda. Hello. Hello. Well super excited to have you I think Gary Vaynerchuk introduced you and I way back in the day so it's been a while and it's been amazing to see supergroup's growth since that intro Yes it's definitely been an exciting ride over here <laughs> to say the least in preparation for the show, I dug a bit deeper into the founder story because in my mind I was like oh it's Amanda but of course there's another incredible woman who's involved in the business and is the founder so supergroup It was started by a former teacher, Holly Thaggard, in 2005. You joined in 2016 as CEO. Since then, the businesses seemed to explode. A major headline last year was that Blackstone took a majority stake in the business. Mm -hmm. According to the press, it said somewhere between valuing the business to 600 to 700 million, which is remarkable. Congratulations! Since you joined in 2016, what's caused this
2: meteoric rise? Well, first of all, I think it really does all begin with an incredible founder story. Holly's still very much a part of the business and this will always be sort of her brainchild. She had a friend who was diagnosed with skin cancer at age 29. And Holly, like me, probably always was meant to be an entrepreneur. Came from an entrepreneurial family and you take an entrepreneurial family a clear personal incident and somebody who wants to kind of change the world and out came Supergoop. So she's like, well, there's no good reason why anyone gets skin cancer. It's the most common cancer, but it's also the most preventable. How do I change that? And actually the first iteration of Supergoop was bringing product into schools. Turns out that is a great idea, very hard to scale and very hard to do because of different regulations that we, we won't go all the way down that rabbit hole, but we certainly can. She pivoted to retail and pivoted to building a consumer brand and really the early insights into what that brand is uh, continue to be the things that drive us. How do we create product and a brand that creates joy? And by creating joy, you change behavior. And that's really the essence of what we do. We just do it every year better and bigger. So the strategy has never changed. It was always based on that. When I first joined this brand coming up on seven years ago, I had a little piece of paper in which I scribbled, okay, what do we got to do? And that's never changed. I mean, that was rooted in the beginning and, and will always be what we're up to. I think when you ask about kind of what changed, I think that what we were able to do is put a strategy and talent behind that strategy. And so really thinking about how do I get to this big, 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 big idea takes a lot of baby steps, and those baby steps are done by people. So that's really the change. It's not a change of who we are. I think it's really important to always stay true to your roots, but we were able to kind of get at the opportunity, I think, by really figuring out how to line up the right product, the right marketing, and the right execution, and all that comes down to people.
3: I love it. I also love it. Just curious, 2005, 2016, 2023, the world has changed. Sarah and I obviously work in a lot of categories and what we saw, I think collectively in our data, is skincare really started to pop in this pandemic, post-pandemic world compared to other forms of personal care. Is there anything around the sign of the times that also accelerated the growth, like just in terms of organic market tailwinds?
2: That history of 2005 to 2023 is, is my history in the beauty industry. So I joined the beauty industry after business school My internship at Clinique was in 2005. And so I've sort of seen the cycle of what comes and goes, as well as what always stays the same within, you know, and we'll call it beauty, personal care, writ large, health and wellness. Those categories are all starting to meld together. But what has always stayed true is kind of, I would say, we're always trying to be the best version of ourselves. That's sort of a human nature that drives our category. And I think really drives how product and brands are thought of in our category, what changes is how we do that, where we shop for it, and how we hear about the products. So skincare certainly had a great, we'll call it boom during COVID because the people were home and they had a lot of time and their face masks and exfoliants and all these things. That was a, a version of that. There was many other, the pendulum between what I'll call skincare and makeup, which I think are kind of not as bifurcated as they were at one point in time, that's gone back and forth. So The makeup boom was preceded by a skincare boom, and that kind of swings back and forth. And every time it has a little bit of a twist on it, it's usually driven by a brand or a product or a moment in time that shifts consumer behavior. And again, we could go through every single one of those cycles, but I would not say that skincare only had a moment In 2020, 2022, there has been other moments along the way that that have certainly shaped this industry. What does change a lot is the channels of distribution. So that's evolved a lot since 2005. And I know we're going to talk about DTC versus wholesale. And back in 2005, there was, quite frankly, even when this brand was created, there was really only wholesale. DTC wasn't even a thing. So that's shifted a lot. And I think the channel shifts are continuing today. And then obviously, you know, marketing changes a lot. How people, you know, so back in 2005, it was all about the print magazines. And maybe if you were a really big brand, you could afford some television or print magazine advertising, and you distributed encounters. That was the business model. And now, obviously, it looks very different and will continue to look very different. So I think really the secret to success as a brand over time, and the thing that I think really separates our strategy and how we think about things is that we were movement, not a moment, and that what we are building needs to work no matter what those distribution strategies are, or what the marketing mix tends to be. And you have to evolve and change with that because that's what happens naturally within the industry. And I would say probably with consumer products and
1: retail more broadly. Completely agree, understand, et cetera.
0: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you wanna tell people the big news? Use code ADWEEK for 10% off when you sign up. Ready to take your social media game to the next level? Head on over to viralgrowth.io and let's turn those digital dreams into a reality.
1: Filling out the foreshadowing that you started putting out there about channel strategy, two parts to that question. If you start out as a D2C business and then you move over into other distribution channels, first of all, you know, we've seen that movement succeed. We've seen that movement not succeed. Not with you, of course. You're kicking ass. But when it comes to the risk of brand dilution, the risk of losing control over your narrative, a lot can happen. And as you've grown both in terms of overall distribution and overall units sold and whatnot, how do you think about retaining your brand while continuing to expand your mm-hmm. distribution range?
2: Yeah. So fun fact, super good began as a wholesale business, not there was barely a website when I started. So we've actually been on the opposite journey. But I think the the probably lessons hold true. One, I guess I've never really seen it as that you're losing something when you go to wholesale. I think you're gaining an unbelievable amount of visibility. You're gaining the partnerships that we have with Sephora, with Ulta, with our other retail partners are extremely strong. They make us better as a brand. They understand Touch points to the consumer that, you know, quite frankly, as a brand our size, you never could have. They have insights, they have. So I think they make us better. When you talk about control over the brand, yes, of course. Once I'm in a shelf at Sephora, I only have so much space to express who I am in, but it's still really valuable. And I think you can still communicate a lot. And I think the consumer lives today in a world in which they're often researching on a website, then they're going into the store. And, and this idea that that you're only getting one expression of the brand, I think is probably not the reality of how people shop. So I've never really seen it as I'm giving something up. I've always seen it as like, we're gaining something. I think that where brands have a challenge is probably twofold. One, they don't totally understand the retail game, how to work with the buyer, how to understand what their motivations are as a merchant, which are really important to contextualize your brand in, in that, how to execute properly at store, how to put up a shelf, how to get a P page right. Like There are certain things that are just a different skill set. That doesn't necessarily exist within a DTC organization. So I think like everything else is about talent. And if you're at that pivot point as a brand, making sure that you have people that really understand that world. For example, I know the Glossier just rolled out in Sephora. That gondola looks great, right? So it's it's not a less version of Glossier. It's just a different version of Glossier. So I think just thinking about it in that context. The other thing that I think brands tend to forget that I think is a very big, important one is your margin. There was a lot of conversation in direct to consumer about being able to sell higher quality product at a lower price because you were quote unquote cutting out the middleman. You gotta make sure that when you're building a business that you're leaving room for a retail margin. And if you don't, you're gonna end up with a that that is just gonna be really challenging. So I think building from the get-go, I think now brands are really understanding that they need to think about that right out of the gate. And that just, you know, again, changes kind of the price point that you can play at it for sure. With
3: that in mind. Do you feel a consumer product company can come to market today and be solely D2C, knowing what you know today?
2: It depends on how big they want to be. So absolutely, yes, you certainly can do that. I think it's hard to hit scale without it. I think that's why we're seeing the, the changes is that you just, you certainly can, you just will have a hard time getting to be as big as maybe some brands aspire to be.
3: And when it comes to scale and brands are thinking about, just their overall marketing investment in relation to top line revenue. Like how do you think about those two things to drive growth?
2: I think it depends on the stage of the brand. The rest of your margin profile is, I don't think there's a specific answer to that. I do believe that marketing drives growth. What changed at Supergoop, we always had unbelievable product, just nobody knew about it. Um, and so a lot of, it, of what we've been doing is putting, you know, as we say, a megaphone to our message I think that it's something that, and this really applies, I think, to DTC as well as to wholesale. You can't just put product on a shelf or put it up on a site. You've got to tell people it's there. And the only way to do that is through marketing. So I think it is very essential, but I think doing it in a smart way, doing it in in a way that understands the importance of profitability. I've always been in the, you know, I've been a little bit. Different in my take on that and been very pro-profit from a very early stage in this business and sort of really felt like I'd much rather build a business a little bit more slowly, but build it in a way that is sustainable and will can really stand the test of time. And that's been really important to us. So that does mean that we have to do more with less when it comes to marketing, right? And there's many things that we'd love to do that we say, you know, and I don't believe in no, I believe in not yet. So there's many things that sort of come over time. But I think that discipline is really important because that just gives you a certain amount of control. And it means that as the leadership of an organization, of anyone participating in the organization, we have control over our fate. We're not beholden to being able to to going out to raise the next dollar. And I think that's just, the world is sort of starting to understand that. I've been talking about that since I joined in 2016. Marketing needs to be taken into the context of how you're thinking about the overall profitability of the business.
1: There's more to that though, obviously to unpack because there's marketing is in media expense, but there's also just how you show up. Yes. And whether you're making one piece of content versus another piece of content, one's going to drive a more compelling effect. As two entrepreneurs, I think uh, Rachel and I appreciate the fact that you have a profit first mentality that we are here ultimately to make money. So right on there. How do you think about the things that might not necessarily be expenditures, but how do you make the brand more approachable? Let's say, for example, on the digital shelf, you could have product image or you could have brand experience. Those need to reconcile against each other. How you show up in like an FSI is going to be very different for a brand like Supergoop than you would if you were, frankly, a more commoditized type brand.
2: Yeah. So I think there's probably two elements to that question. One is, just how do you create a brand, right? And that we are very visual beings as humans, more sensorial. I think this is the part that when I met Holly, I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew that this brand had it. You kind of are born that way or not. And then it's your job to put great creative people to bring it to life. That is a really hard thing to explain, but I think you start to see it. you just around it enough. And I had the privilege of working in a lot of really great brands before I came here. So when I saw it i knew what we had that was special i think you also are talking to something that is very important which is i could give the same list of here's the marketing tactics that supergoop uses to anybody on the planet like i don't think that necessarily with a few exceptions that we do anything that's so wildly unique right in terms of what we do how we do it and the brand beneath how we do it and the people who bring it to life that's the real differentiator so Yes, anybody can quote unquote, buy a TikTok ad, put a platform together and sort of execute against it, but it's all in the detail. It's all in the exact image. It's in the exact piece of content. I'll sound like a broken record, but that comes down to who made that content. Somebody who's great at it or not, but then also matching up that second point of if you're in an elevated brand and making sure that you sort of are are lining up your price point, your messaging, the expectation of the brand, like that's what great marketing is. And that's what I think we have a team that's really best in the business at.
3: Staying on the topic of what versus how, one of the things that's evolved over the last few years that coincides probably with your growth story, not saying it attributed to it, is this whole notion of the rise of retail media. Retailers becoming advertising channels, then monetizing their first party data. How are you thinking about brand versus retail media to drive future growth for Supergoop?
2: Yeah. And I'm watching it very carefully. It's relatively new to our partners. Our partners have really only brought it in pretty recently. Amazon obviously was probably the first version of this, right? And that is a really interesting and important platform that we're sort of trying to uncover. We honestly haven't spent a ton of time figuring this out yet. I can tell it's a new frontier. I can tell that it's something, and you know, I, I sort of always think about these moments in the history of, like I said, you know, sort of 2005 was when I got into this business. I can feel these things when they start and we're like, "Oh, okay, this is going to become a big topic of conversation, even when it just starts. And I felt that way about TikTok. And this is one where, again, it's kind of coming up enough times. I think what the challenge will be is how do you use this efficiently? How do you make sure that you are truly driving an incremental sale? Versus converting somebody who would have clicked on your product anyway. That's what we're going to have to figure out, right? Because we want to make sure that we're putting our marketing dollars, like I said, in the most efficient ways. I think figuring that out. And I think the retailers will need to partner with us on sort of providing that data so that we can you know, continue to invest in the right places. So stay tuned.
3: Well, despite it being early for you guys, I think you hit the nail on the head. I and mean, the number one thing that Sarah and I hear in these conversations is brand manufacturers wanting to understand, is this driving incremental growth? And are retailers providing transparency into that? Well, final thing that I wanted to make sure we get in before we ask you our final famous question. And this is only because I love the brand and I get upset when I see this. I've been obsessed with Supergoop for many years. And I've noticed that a bunch of dupes, I'm doing air quotes, have come to market at places like Trader Joe's and Target. This isn't unique super It's something that you see across, I would say many categories, but how do you suggest brands combat dupes, even private labels from the retailers?
2: Yeah. I mean, look, I think private label dupe, it's always been there. I think the best analogy that I have, and I can say this because I'm a terrible cook is that I could go to Whole Foods and buy the same set of ingredients and cook a meal. And then I could go to a Michelin star restaurant, the same set of ingredients, probably a few different, you know, higher quality. They're going to throw in a bunch more different things. And let me tell you, we don't have to, you know, like I said, I'm a terrible cook. So <laughs> dupes are something that I think you have to be really careful about assuming that they're the same thing because they're not. So I'll just kind of make sure that, that we understand that and that your listeners understand that. That being said, I think the most important thing to do as a brand is to just keep going. Our job is to continue to educate people on wearing sunscreen every single day. Our t-shirt says wear sunscreen. It doesn't say wear Goop." We believe that we produce the best possible product on the market and that our marketing and the brand ethos and what we bring to the table is about spreading joy. Nobody else can replicate that. They cannot take that from us. And so we got to just put our heads down and, and keep doing what we've been doing for the last 15, 20 years and what we'll keep doing for the next 15, 20 years. And just be grateful that we have this kind of opportunity that other people seem to be taking notice of.
3: I love that. Just keep going. Well, Amanda,
2: what's the bravest thing that you've ever done? I saw this question. You know, I have this funny thing where I don't think of anything as that scary. And I don't know if that's good or not. I think that I have over Life just sort of always thrown myself into things. I like to feel a little bit nervous. If I'm 100% confident, then I know that I'm not pushing myself hard enough. I think probably every day I'm brave. I think being an entrepreneur is brave because you don't know everything that you're doing. You have a lot of responsibility. You care passionately about something. So I probably haven't done the bravest thing yet, but I kind of just show up to work every day and hope that I make good decisions and I lead the team well. Funny thing is I'm smiling because I always say that my son has like no fear and he goes down a, he, he takes that very literally and goes down a ski slope without like turning. Mine is a little bit different. I think I love things that are new. I love change. I embrace it. And I think it does take a certain amount of bravery to think that way.
3: Well, we're excited to watch you keep going and see what Bravax, you and Supergoop, do next. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Wow, did we all just get a crash course in margins and multi-channel distribution, marketing. Amanda is truly a wealth of knowledge, and I loved what she said. It's a movement, not a moment. If you liked this episode, there are a few other amazing, what the industry likes to call, challenger brands you can go take a listen to. Denise Woodward of Partake Foods, recent episode, Anouk Gottlieb of Belgian Boys, another great founder and disrupting a category. And then you can see a similar story to Amanda, where an acquisition actually occurred which is with Tate's Cookies, which Mondelēz acquired. And you can hear the CEO, Essie, saying, talk about her relationship with the original founder as well. If you enjoy what Sarah and I are doing, tell a friend, share it with a colleague, post on LinkedIn. Thank you for listening to us.
0: Visit viralgrowth.io and use code ADWEEK, that's A-D-W-E-E-K, all lowercase, and get 10% off your plan.
2: Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer
1: I do hope to see you there.